The New Testament reading is taken from James chapter 1, verses 17 to 21. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray again. Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word. And we recognize today our, our need to take the scroll and to eat it. And so we pray, Lord God, that your word would sink deep by the mysterious working today of your Holy Spirit, that you would apply it to us in the way that only you can. Speak, O Lord, for your servants listen. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking at the epistle of James today, and uh, we're coming up as a church uh, to the season of Rogation. Next Sunday, which is Easter 5, is called Rogation Sunday, and the few days after it are the period of Rogation. And that's not a word that most of us use very often uh, these days. We don't tend to be preoccupied in any sense of the word uh, with our Rogations. <laughs> been a while since I've considered my rogations. It's not a word that falls off our tongues or our lips very easily or very frequently at all. In fact, someone in our church recently and very humorously, I might add, asked if it was going to be Rogaine Sunday uh, coming up. But while rogation has little to do with hair, it does have to do with growth. Rogation comes from the Latin verb rogare, which means to, to ask. And uh, around this time of May, historically, the church would gather to pray, as it had done all the year long, but especially to pray and ask for the good things of God that pertain to the blessing of the sowing of crops and the sowing of seeds in the field with the eventual harvest in view. In fact, it wouldn't be strange at all to see congregations uh, at this time, following their leaders outside, walking around the parish boundary, processing around with the cross in their hands, and singing and saying prayers for the good gifts of God to fall upon his creation. One part of the crowd would, would sing out, You crown the year with bounty, O God. And the other side of the crowd would answer with, Your wagon tracks, they drop and overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness, they overflow. And the others, I would cry out, the hills, they gird themselves with joy. And I don't doubt that we've lost something important here in failing of this practice by letting it go, not only in forgetting that our food doesn't come from the grocery store, but it comes from the hardworking farmer. But beyond that, and perhaps more importantly, forgetting the farmer himself is a middleman. And he is handling in those seeds and in that 
crop, he is handling the deep mysteries of God. And like a midwife, the farmer is bringing something into existence that is not his own. <laughs> Didn't come from him. And perhaps there's good reason next year as a church that we're going to take a little walk on Rogation Sunday. We can walk around the boundaries of our parish. We can walk around the blossoming orchards on Rogation Sunday. And we can pray with the psalmist in Psalm 72 as a church as we go out through the cherry fields and we can say, may there be an abundance of grain, O Lord, in our land. Or in our case, again, cherries. May there be in the tops of the mountains produce that waves. May it be rich as with Lebanon and may the people blossom in our city. And then hopefully none of us will get shot for trespassing. <laughs> as we go through fields that aren't our own. Well, in our reading today in, uh, in James, the Apostle James, whom both Matthew and Paul refer to as the Lord's brother, one who shared a home life with Jesus in Galilee, who saw his older brother at work in his father's carpenter shop, learning how to use a wood plane, learning how to use a hammer, saw the Lord Jesus in all of his prosaic humanity. This same James now opens his letter today and he introduces himself as a servant and as a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. This James in our passage today with a rogation theme, he wants to turn our hearts and our minds to the bounty of God. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift, it comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation, with whom there is no shadow due to change. It's a beautiful phrase, isn't it? The Father of lights. We probably don't use it enough in our conversation or in our prayers. Who's your father? Oh, my father is the Father of lights. In the Greek, it's equally lovely, patros ton photon, where we get the, the photos, all that language of photography and photogenic, all these things. And the writer's meaning to say every light, he's the father of it. It comes from him. Every illumination, every guiding beam of brightness, every ray of warmth, he is the father of it all. And what James refers to especially and specifically is the astronomical lights. In the Hebrew mind, the world was governed by three lights. The moon to govern the world at night, and the stars, and the sun to rule the world by day. And as these lights, James says, as they rule our earthly existence, so that the darkness and the coldness of space do not overwhelm us, so God our Father rules the darkness and the coldness that always loom around us and threaten us in this life. Always an ominous threat. This is why James begins the passage in verse 16, or at least our passage today, begins in verse 16 by the admonition that we must not be deceived about the nature of who God is. In the several verses before, James has been talking about evil. He's been talking about temptation. He's been talking about sin. He's been talking about death. And throughout his epistle, James, he, he never shies away from these things. In three of the five chapters, James deals with 
the demonic expressly in one form or another, and every chapter in some way takes up this theme of destruction and affliction. There's a raw honesty in James. There's a, there's a, a willingness to deal with these things, as there is in the whole Bible, the reality of trouble. And there's no coincidence that James ends his book by appealing to the historical figure and the example of Job to sum up everything that he said. You've heard, my friends, he says, of the example, the patience of Job. This life, just like Job's life, is afflicted by the mystery of evil and the mystery of trouble. When Yahweh appears at the end of Job in the whirlwind, when he appears in that whirlwind, we're not afforded, even as Job's not afforded, any explanation for what's happened. It remains mystery, and it remains unsettling mystery, but the Bible refuses to give pat answers. The Bible refuses to offer simplistic explanations to these things. It's true that much of us, or much of the trouble that we see is self-propelled. We make our bed, don't we? And we lie in it in this world. We do it to ourselves. And this is James's point in verses 13 to 15. Our own misguided desires get us into trouble. Our own misguided aims lead us into the path of destruction. But there's something else. There's also this other disturbing element that James addresses in verses 2 to 4. Trouble that we've not devised. Trouble that meets us uninvited on the road evil and affliction that we've not concocted ourselves. And the very real temptation James knows is that in the midst of trouble, we begin to think poorly about God. Our thoughts of God begin to shrink. We can begin to think that God is not much of a giver at all in view of things that have happened. And before we know it, our lives are no longer governed by thanksgiving and erupting praise. We miss God in the big things. And then we miss God in the small things. And before we know it, we're missing God altogether. Trouble and affliction, they have a way in Chesterton's turn of phrase of making us old. And robbing us of that eternal youthfulness which delights in the goodness of a father who, like a child enraptured by the father's creativity, says, Oh, Dad, do it again. Do it again. But sin makes us old by robbing us of the childlike delight in a beneficent father. And this really is the archetypal temptation, isn't it, in Eden? Even in a troublous paradise, the serpent whispers to Eve that God wants to hold something back from them. There's something there that he's not letting you have. God is miserly, the serpent says. God is withholding good things from you, he says. And Adam and Eve, they listen and they eat. And in a moment, they grow old and hard and jaded. And it's for more reason than one that Scripture talks about the state of sin as the old man and says that the only way to enter into the kingdom of heaven is by becoming like a child. And it's for this reason that James today writes that we must not be deceived. 
God is the Father of lights, he says. He is the source of every good thing. And were it not for his steadfast warmth and light, the whole human race would be swallowed up in darkness and in coldness. It's not his nature, James says. It's not God's nature to withhold that which is good. The serpent was wrong. Even when, as we read in Job, God takes things away, he gives and he takes away, but even when he takes away, it is for the purpose of giving. It is God's nature to give. It is his nature to shine. God is light, writes the Apostle John, and in him is no darkness at all. This is the nature of God, writes Luther, not to take good, but to give it. And whereas the moon and the sun, whereas they may have a variation, James says, where they may have a shadow due to change, whereas the sun and the moon can be eclipsed and the light can be interrupted, God's kindness, he says, can never be eclipsed. God's light can never stop shining upon you. God's generosity cannot be stopped. It refuses to be stopped. He will continue to shine. He will continue to preserve us from the forces of darkness and from the forces of coldness that are always threatening us as his people, both from without and from within. And this, my brothers and sisters, is the word of the gospel. This is the word of the gospel. This is the word of truth that we read now in verse 18, by which God brings us to new life in him, the word of promise that keeps us from growing old. The word that proclaims despite the coldness and despite the darkness, despite the last enemy, even death itself, God, through the gift of his son, dying on an instrument of cruel darkness, swallows up all of our oldness and all of our hardness, and he makes a way for us to be eternally young. And he makes a way for us to have everything. And so the apostle writes in Romans 8, he did, who did not spare his own son, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Everlasting life. Everlasting satisfaction in the thrill of an existence that wakes up every morning only to discover that its capacity to be satisfied has grown even more. Everlasting delight, everlasting joy, adventure, purpose, and most importantly, everlasting freedom to be creatures who look like God. Not a people who live to take, but a people who live to give, to whom giving is so much easier than receiving. Love the earth, writes Augustine, and you become earth. Love gold, and you become gold. Love God, and you become like God. And as John says, beloved, we don't know what will be when he appears.
But when the Lord finally appears, we know that we too will be like him. And so today, my brothers and sisters, I invite you to the Lord's table. I invite you to taste and to see and to believe that the Lord is good. The Lord delights in mercy. The Lord delights to give good things to his people. And most of all, the Lord delights to give himself. Not the stream, not the rivulet, but the Lord delights to give the very fountain. As I say to my children so very often, the maker is better than the made. The creator is better than the created. The giver, he's better than the gift. And so hear the Lord calling today and respond in faith and receive the gift of God and receive the gifts of God for you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.